Good evening, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Joe Froelich, Executive Editor of Content at IdeaStream, and we're at Great Lakes Brewing Company for the fifth forum in our Constitution Ale series, a series of forums focused on the United States Constitution, the strange compromises that went into making it, and the ways in which those compromises continue to affect our lives today. We are, as I said, here at, the Great, La at Great Lakes Brewing Company. That's uh, where the ale part of this comes. Uh, you're invited to, uh, to have, a, uh, have a drink, go up to the bar, uh, if you can do that quietly, even during, the, uh, during our program. Uh, if you're listening at home, you're certainly welcome to have a beer with, you, with us. Uh, if you are listening in your car, though, I would ask you, if you're driving, please not to have the beer, at least till you get home. Um, tonight, we're talking about one facet of the First Amendment, which actually outlines five separate freedoms. So let me quote. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The pillar of the First Amendment, known as religious freedom, offers two protections, as you just heard. The government cannot establish, endorse, or promote a religion, nor can it prohibit religious expression. It's a delicate balance and one that has received increasing attention in high-profile court cases where individuals, corporations, or institutions refuse to provide products or services to women, members of the LGBT community, or members of religious and ethnic minorities, all on the basis of religious objection. Today, we'll discuss whether and how religious freedom and equality can coexist both legally and practically. We're joined by, beginning next on my left, Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, and the Judge Ben C. Green, Professor of Law at Cates Western Reserve School of Law. Marcus Schultz Bergen, PhD, Assistant College Lecturer in the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion at Cleveland State University. Patrick J. Parati, partner at Dworkin and Bernstein Company, LPA. And Raymond Vasveri, Principal at Vasveri Zimmerman. So with that, let's begin. Um, let me ask, and we'll see who wants to go first on this, why did the drafters of the Bill of Rights include protection for religion? What were the issues that drove that? Typically in, in, um, in civics class, you know, we hear about the Puritans and the Pilgrims and the Quakers, and that uh, 100 years later, they wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, that, those, that, that religious expression was protected. But was that indeed what drove it? And, um, and kind of what were, the, what were the factors that went into this? Sure. So in political philosophy, what we would probably focus on here for the United States was uh, issues that arose in the 17th and 18th century in England, in Europe more generally, but especially England, um, that led to the development of a new view in political philosophy. Um, so particularly England was, England was racked by various uh, religious confrontations between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but also, there started to be this idea that uh, the divine right of kings was not really the right way to establish political authority, uh, and instead, people weren't born naturally under the thumb of anyone else, but instead were free and equal. And so the question became, and we see this uh, repeated in the Declaration of Independence, for instance, in the United States, uh, from the United States, um, that the uh, authority of the government, or the legitimate authority of the government, has to come from the consent of the governed. And so one way that this uh, particularly comes up in the context of religion is it seems terribly unlikely that people would consent to be governed uh, by laws that required them to uh, not be able to exercise their deepest held beliefs, which at the time largely came from uh, religion. And so um, 
in, in that way, the stuff in the First Amendment regarding religion is largely just seen as a smaller subset or maybe just a, a way of talking about a more fundamental right of conscience, which philosophers like John Locke were particularly interested in and that were uh, particularly influential to people like James Madison. Jesse, go ahead. Oh, so yeah, I just I, I just want to add on that though that there's also this layer that makes um, the First Amendment a little different from how we think about it today, which is that the Bill of Rights, when it was originally passed, was seen as limitations only on the federal government, and so the understanding was that the federal government couldn't establish a religion, but there was no prohibition on states doing that, and actually they did. Several of them had established religions into the 19th century, and so the modern concept that you could you know, sue um, because a state was too intertwined with religion or that you could you know, get a law struck down as unconstitutional under that provision really didn't start happening until about the mid, well, like the 1940s in, in the US. So um, that was certainly the origins, but it wasn't understood as being a constraint just because of the way the Constitution was understood to function. It wasn't understood as being a constraint on states at that time. Nor were right. any of the other provisions of the Bill of Rights that ought to be emphasized yeah. that all of these were seen, not just the religion clauses or the right. speech clauses, as restrictions on federal authority. Um, and it's really not until the Civil War. It's the 14th Amendment uh, that's passed in the wake of the Civil War, uh, along with the 13th and the 15th, um, which uh, provide the modern constitutional interpretation of what we call incorporation, uh, what Jesse just stressed, uh, the idea that the Constitution binds equally uh, the states as well as the federal government. And what you see after the adoption of the 14th Amendment with the First Amendment freedom, religious freedom clauses coming, as she says, comparatively late in the 1940s, is all of the things that you think of as being in the Bill of Rights clicking in one after another over a period of four or five decades until effectively the whole Bill of Rights applies both to the states and the federal government. But it's a sea change in the way the nation perceives itself as a political comedy. And for people in the audience and people who are listening who are not lawyers, the simple thing you can remember is what was happening in England? England had the Church of England. So that's the shall not establish. The colonists did not want the government to create the church. They wanted it separate from the government. And then there were colonists who were not Anglican. They had their own religions, the Quakers and a number of others. And that's the shall not prohibit the free exercise thereof. So that's why we have these two parts. Government, don't start your own religion and tell us to be part of it. And government, don't tell us what religion we can practice. And that's really the origin of the religion provision of the First Amendment. Marcus? Yeah, I just wanted to add here that it's, I think it can be interesting to think about the first version of the First Amendment. Uh, so not the version we have, but the version that Madison initially wrote, only because it specified that um, the civil liberties of no person shall be infringed due to their religion. So there was more basically saying don't discriminate against people on the basis of religion. That's the part that gets transfer transformed into the free exercise clause. Um, and it's, there's no clear reason, we have no clear indication of any debate that said, hey, we don't want to include that, we want to be able to discriminate based on religion or anything. So the um, <clears throat> reasonable assumption here, I think, is that that first draft was quite long, and so it's not surprising that it gets cut down in these certain ways, but it helps to be thinking about the fact that they were concerned about religious discrimination um, as well as blocking people from exercising their religion. Because those are 
you know, potentially two different things. You could discriminate against somebody just because of their religion, right, by not serving them or something like that, um, but that doesn't necessarily stop them from exercising their religion in any other way. But I thought legislators liked law, long and wordy laws. <laughs> One dirty secret. No, lawyers do. <laughs> a, a dirty secret of the First Amendment and its place in the Bill of Rights uh, is this, and it takes a little bit, but not much of the wind out of the sails of those of us who practice in this area um, and tend to imbue the First Amendment with the same sort of spiritual qualities as it is intended to protect. It wasn't always first. Um, it ends up first out of a number of drafting and revisions committees. Uh, it doesn't enjoy any pride of place. I think it was initially in the first draft's seventh among the potential amendments in the Bill of Rights. So um, a little bit of the shine comes off, but that's okay uh, because it emphasizes what it was, something that is and always was um, the result not only of a set of philosophical uh, presumptions, but of political compromise as well. Ray and Jesse, you both mentioned that it was really almost got to the 1940s before these cases really began to be litigated in the federal court. What were the first types of issues that came before the, the courts and, and rose maybe to the Supreme Court of the United States? What were the, what were the issues about the, around this? I well, fund, I, you know, let's talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses yeah, for a minute because they're the first thing that comes yeah. to mind. I was in a documentary many years ago about the um, uh, the the, ex the free establishment uh, uh, the establishment free exercise travails of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Although I was better then than now, um, and one of the things that strikes you is that uh, if you look at people who have been before the Supreme Court uh, of the United States as a party, what you will find, um, not surprisingly, uh, is the most frequent party in litigation before the United States Supreme Court is in fact the United States itself and the office of the Solicitor General. Um, then the various and larger states come in the second tier. Um, the ACLU, uh, for which, uh, with which I was long affiliated, uh, I had pride of place as being the second uh, most common private party to litigate before the Supreme Court. But if you add up Supreme Court victories, uh, the private party purse goes to the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, who have had more than two dozen cases successfully in front of the court. Um, and West Virginia versus Barnett and another called Minersville School District from 1937 and 1941, respectively, um, are ones that I think really start, uh, they, if they're not the first, and I'll leave to the academics the first, they usher in the modern landscape um, and the, the texture of modern uh, establishment clause jurisprudence. There was a time in the United States where the salute of the flag in the Pledge of Allegiance was mandatory. And Jehovah's Witnesses um, who will swear to no graven image would routinely ask to be or have their children exempted from saying the mandatory Pledge of Allegiance uh, in the classroom in the morning. And in uh, Pennsylvania, 1937, this exemption could have the parents and the children uh, subjected to criminal sanctions. Uh, those sanctions were taken up to the Supreme Court on the notion uh, that there was uh, a religious right of conscience to not participate in this salute, in this act of effective homage or worship to a, what they saw as a graven image. Uh, the Supreme Court rejected that challenge in a, in a case I think called Minersville School District. Um, and then uh, just four years later in 1941 in a case called West Virginia um, versus Barnett, changed course and uh, if not unanimously by a very large uh, plurality or majority uh, decided that in fact there was a right of conscience not to be uh, compelled to make an oath uh, that violated your religious tenets or 
conscious. Um, Justice Jackson uh, opining for the court that if there is any fixed star in our constitutional firmament, uh, it is that no man may be compelled to make an oath against his conscience. There's one little fact that, you know, the, one searches um, through First Amendment jurisprudence, and I can think of only one other case in which you see a complete sea change and a reversal um, in Supreme Court doctrine over the span of four years, um, and that's between 1972 and 1976 in the case of the right to public access and protest on private shopping malls, uh, where the court first said you could and then said you couldn't. Um, the shopping malls, I'm not sure uh, where the sea change came in. It may have just been the transition from the Warren to the Rehnquist court. It may not have been an accident uh, that in 1941 the court was conscious of the fact that it was required in West Virginia to salute the flag with one's right arm extended in what was called uh, then, before anybody had uh, thought to rename it, the Roman salute, um, and that standing and hiling the flag uh, took on a very different feeling uh, after the invasion of Poland and the Battle of Britain than it had just a few years earlier. Interesting. Uh, quick, does the court equate religion and conscience? Is that the same? Are they the same things? I'm not going to answer Marcus. the. I'm, I won't answer the court part of it. We well, yeah, sure, have philosophically. Uh, are they the same? What I'll say is um, that in the 17th and 16th, yeah, yeah, in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, freedom of conscience was just freedom of religion in the meaningful sense, because for every person that anyone cared about, anyway, they assumed your conscience came from your religion. So even even philosophers like John Locke, who were really concerned about religious toleration, really concerned about individual freedom. They didn't think you could trust atheists, so they only cared about the freedom of, of religious people. Um, but by and large, uh, it seems, again, given the first draft of the First Amendment, which mentions right, actually mentions right of conscience as well, so that was taken out, but it does say explicitly right of conscience initially. Um, and then in uh, Canada, some of their protections specifically mention right of conscience and religion. So that seems to suggest they're different, but they've largely treated them as just you know, an, an extension, they're the same kind of thing that we're asking about. Um, so I think by and large, at least philosophically, we treat them basically the same. You could have, obviously, conscience concerns that aren't religious, but pretty much all religious concerns are treated as conscience concerns. Uh, and I think we heard a few kind of quotations from certain decisions where the freedom of conscience was the way that uh, some decisions have been made um, where they're making use of the free exercise clause or, or at least referencing it um, elliptically. And this, of course, oh. brings up the Scalia issue, and that is, how do you apply the Constitution? Do you use the exact words that are there, or do you treat it as a living document where the words change or permute as time goes on? And as you just said, our Constitution uses the word religion. The Canadian uses religion and conscience. Obviously, if you talk to m most lawyers or judges, they would say every word in a statute or a constitutional provision is intended to have a meaning. So when you have the things distinguished between constitutions that say religion and conscience and ones that only say religion, then the strong argument is it only included religion. The only problem is, like most other constitutional provisions, what does religion mean? There's no definition. And so we're seeing that some courts are using the idea of religion to go beyond what we think of as religion into maybe conscience, but then that goes back on itself and it says, well, where do you draw the line? Jesse? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the Supreme Court has 
been really reluctant to define what the limits of the term religion are and what it means by religion. There's sort of the one context where it's come close is in the conscientious objector cases in uh, the 1960s where uh, the court, I mean, the court did still draw a distinction and said basically if you don't want to go to war because um, of sec purely secular reasons, even if they are conscientious, that's too bad. Yeah, you don't right. fall under, you don't have any protection. Now, um, it defined religion very broadly, and also it's important to say that this was sort of not really a constitutional question. It was about what the conscientious objector statute meant. Um, but, but it was really broad in its understanding of religion, and sort of it doesn't have to be a traditional religion, it doesn't have to be organized religion, it doesn't have to be like the written down tenets of your religion, it can be just some sort of transcendent set of, some sort of set of beliefs about transcendent matters, you know, life after death, supreme being, things like that. But it had to be, but the court's been very clear that it has to be something more than what we might consider just moral or purely conscience-based claims. Marcus? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the reason pragmatically that it makes some sense to be trying to limit it in various ways, this particularly would make sense in the case of conscientious objection during the Vietnam War, is that they want it, that there, there's the way of thinking about how we think about religious freedom, which is that it has to be a sincerely held belief. And that's a really hard thing for anyone to judge, whether or not my belief is sincere in any case. Mm -hmm. But one way in which you might be able to semi-objectively start to determine that is, does it come from a stock of beliefs that we are familiar with? And so, or, uh, obviously, if they're, not, if they're saying it doesn't have to be an organized religion, that downplays it a bit. But nonetheless, if you focus on organized religions or organized traditions, I suppose, then at least you have something when someone says, I have an objection for this reason, you can say, oh, yeah, and that tradition's been around for a while, and that's what all of them say. So it's easier to judge sincerely held beliefs which you might think is particularly important if you have a lot of people trying to get out of something by claiming an exemption or an objection. And so conscientious objection during the Vietnam War is, is probably a, a reasonable case where that would, that would pop up. If you look at the early decisions involving conscientious objectors, um, what strikes you is that the court approaches them like a, a petulant child approaches a cold plate of uneaten peas. They sort of pick at them uh, with a fork, and they, there seems not to be much enthusiasm. They are willing to make judicial determinations about the facts of sincerity, but never about the actual credibility of the belief which dovetails with the notion of it's hard to figure what's sincere, but if you know you get your draft notice and suddenly you find the Quaker faith within 15 minutes, there may be a lack of sincerity there. On the other <laughs> hand, uh, you know, whether or not you believe in the flying spaghetti monster is beyond our kin uh, as a judicial body. I think there is a certain degree in the way that they have both broadened the question to take religion out of it. Um, and uh, accepted things that are so essentially philosophical but nominally non-secular, there's a degree of cowardice there. Um, and I think it needs to be called out. Um, because what the court's avoiding is the underlying question, why should something that we term religious, whatever that means, and by the way, they're not going to tell you what it means, be given some sort of incentive or precedence over a sincerely held belief that's derived wholly um, from secular thought. If I don't gonna, wanna go to war because, you know, because I've been taught as much by Spinoza, why does it matter that I would have been taught the same result by my priest? If the belief is sincerely held enough, uh, deeply believed in, rationally arrived at, I'm not sure that one deserves to be well, preferred. Well, the answer, I mean, 
Not that I necessarily agree with this answer, but the answer a lot of people would give you is because the word religion, religion is in the Constitution, the Constitution and yeah. conscience or you know other deeply held belief is not. But but it is worth noting, I think, in, in relation to this, that um, again, if 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 the philosophical justification for the freedom of religion protections has something to do with this idea of political authority, that if we're all supposed to be free and equal, how can it be the case that these laws uh, coerce us, right, and, and, and limit our freedom? And the justification is supposed to be something like consent of the governed, uh, or some, you know, something like that. Then uh, it seems like it shouldn't matter whether it's my religion that's make it, making it so I can't consent, or it's my just you know secular philosophical views that are making it so I can't consent. So it is partly a matter, I think, of of working out what the proper sort of what the I guess what the historical justification is for the religious protections. I gave the philosophical ones that I think do the best work, but those might not be the same ones as what were actually driving historically their adoption uh, within the, the First Amendment. Um, and, and that might make a difference to how we, how we expand it or whether we expand it at all. And maybe the reason is that we had decisions for years and years that said that blacks were not citizens. And did that change because the court changed its mind? Most Americans think that's what, that's what happened. Suddenly the court became enlightened. That is not what happened. Judges did not make a change. The Constitution was amended with three amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, to prohibit discrimination against black, uh, blacks and other minorities of color. So my response would be, if we want to change the First Amendment to cover conscience, that's how you change it. You don't have the judges make these decisions to say, we think religion really means this big panoply of things, because I'm suspect of having somebody in a black robe who's not necessarily involved in religion or conscience or morality or anything else making those types of decisions for the entire country. I'd rather have the people make those kind of decisions at the ballot box. Let me respectfully disagree with that. Um, first, my apology to Jesse. She absolutely is right in correcting me. Um, and what I have done here is I have traipsed over the is-ought boundary um, like a little lamb in springtime. And I want to do that from time to time. And I think you should be want to do that too. Um, because the answer is, well, it's doctrine. Uh, it says so in the text. The court has decided. The judges have said. Um, may answer the practical reason why you're likely to go to jail if you do it. But it doesn't answer the more interesting question of whether or not it's the way we should construct our society. Um, I don't think it's correct to say that black people became equal in the United States um, because the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were enacted in 1866, after which we had a century of Jim Crow, after of which we had the failure uh, for decades to pass anti-lynching laws, uh, after which we had a century until uh, the law provided for equal employment uh, and equal accommodation. Um, it is an absolute matter of fact that those changes did not occur until they occurred at the end of bayonets that were pointed by federal troops at southern soldiers those troops were deployed by federal courts on the order of the Kennedy administration uh, and Bobby Kennedy to enforce the orders of the Supreme Court and federal district judges around the country. It is not a popular groundswell. There was no popular groundswell in 1866. The people with whom this would continue to be a problem and has continued to be a problem were disenfranchised from making constitutional decisions in 1866. The 13 Confederate states weren't being heard from. 
and they still feel, I think rather acutely, that they were not heard from. It was a popular groundswell of the North, imposed upon the South, stillborn for a century, and ultimately brought to bear with the force of arms at times through the federal judiciary. And Ray is absolutely correct that we didn't have the implementation of those laws until we had the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, until we had Brown versus Board of Education that overruled Sweat versus Painter and a number of other cases. But the point that we're talking about here today when we talk about the language of the First Amendment is, do you change those types of principles by judicial activity or do you start with a constitutional amendment? And I, again, assert you start with a constitutional amendment and then the court takes up the banner and says, we can't allow anything less than that because now the Constitution says exactly what they say it says. It says religion and conscience. But as, as Ray and I both know, being civil rights lawyers, you don't always get what you want simply because you pass an amendment. You have to then have the courts enforce the amendment because the words are only words on paper until they're enforced, but you still first have to put the words on paper in my opinion. There are times clearly when, uh, when, when rights or definitions of rights collide. So let's, uh, let's talk about a specific case. So let's, let's start off talking a little about, how about we talk about cake? Um, 2018. Moving to dessert already. Moving to dessert, that's right. Some folks are there having their dinner. Uh, we have the, uh, the uh, 2018, the Supreme Court takes up the Masterpiece Cake case out of, uh, out of Colorado. Um, the, the owner, uh, who was the, the master baker, had refused to, uh, to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple in Colorado. He said gay marriage was against his religion, and he was sanctioned by the state civil rights agency, challenged that ruling all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sort of punted on it, said they didn't treat him very well. Maybe go back and take a look at it, but it raised a lot of really interesting issues about when you can, when you can cite religion versus another right, which the, they just talked about, about the rights of gay people and about some very, some things that uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, in one of his final decisions, talked about you shouldn't, you know, about how you should treat people in this society. Um, who wants to start talking a little about that and how that plays out in this context of freedom of religion, and when you can assert a, a claim of freedom of religion? So I'll start just because I think it can dovetail well with what the discussion we just had, which is um, for claims about equality in particular. Uh, the part of, I think part of the discussion we just had about how, the, how no, no matter what amendments we make to the Constitution, how the things actually get enforced, shows that a big thing when we think about, uh, so, about equality uh, is that it's really a matter of social norms, not so much a matter of the law. There, I mean, one question is obviously equality under the law, but a separate question, and I think the relevant one actually in this context from the equality side, is uh, equality as a social norm, how we regard people within society more broadly. And that can't be just forced down anyone's throat through, through law one way or the other. Um, now, on the other hand, though, equality uh, as a social norm, or really any social norm is like this, aren't the sort of things that require 100% compliance. A, a norm is a norm just because it's generally complied with and generally internalized and accepted. And so you can accept that some people are just not really going to be cool with it, and it's OK. And so. Uh, in one sense, one way to understand these sort of conflicts, effectively it's just a conflict between freedom on one hand, in this case freedom of religion, but, but freedom in one, on one hand and equality on the other, is you can ask um, how much freedom can we permit while still being able to uh, get fixation on the social norm we want. 
So if the social norm we want is equality for people, members of the LGBTQ community, um, you can get that potentially while still permitting one baker to not uh, bake a cake, for instance, right? And, and two bakers and three bakers and four bakers. Now, obviously at some point that's, you, you can't, right? Uh, and that's a, that's a problem, right? At some point we have to say, okay, now we have to start cutting it off. But the, uh, the thought here is if we have these certain protections for freedoms of various sorts, in this case, freedom of religion, but freedoms of various sorts, um, then when they come into conflict with the generation of norms of equality, um, in some cases, you can certainly accept the, the claims of freedom and, and, and be okay with it. And it doesn't create a problem for the other thing you're actually trying to achieve, all right? In some cases, it will, though. Um, and so I think, actually, some of the cases we were just talking about, given certain historical facts about the relationship between uh, uh, races, for instance, it might be the case that you can't really accept any uh, uh, deviation and still generate the social norm for various reasons, right? But in this case, it might be one where, where you absolutely could. Jessica? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. From the, from the legal perspective, I mean, personally, I think that these cases actually are kind of hard. Um, and a lot of folks don't disagree with, or don't agree with me about that. But I actually do think these cases are hard. But I think, I'm always, I'm a little baffled by why the court took the case and then just essentially punted it, which is what most people, you know, how most people read that decision. And I think, you know, I think that there's a sense that this is an issue that's gonna be around for like, a few more years and then everybody there are already like six of these people out there there's like six bakers who really object to like making cakes for same-sex couples literally i mean there's like a handful right there's a few florists there's a couple of photographers and you know eventually this sort of this whole situation is going to die out and so maybe we shouldn't be getting ourselves all excited about it on the other hand you know, it's an issue that perennially presents itself. And the issue more generally of to what extent should, you know, religious freedom excuse um, complying with laws that apply to everybody else is a much bigger issue. And it's one that arises in a lot of different contexts. You know, you alluded, I think, to the other contexts like, you know, should employers be able to opt out of providing contraception, things like that. So it does kind of keep coming back. So it's this interesting problem because like, you know, there was this, 30, 40 years ago, it was race, right? It was um, people who didn't want to marry uh, couples who where people were of different races or who didn't want to serve people of a particular race. And that kind of died out, right? Because it was no longer, you know, you just don't find people justifying that kind of discrimination in the name of religion anymore. I think that, you know, we're gonna get to that point with sexual orientation too. But, um, you know, on the other hand, this, this question of sort of the right to be exempt from laws that apply to everyone else is really a perennial problem that, that we do have to deal with. A lot and of people leaning in. Let's go to Patrick. I, I just wanted to add very quickly regarding the, 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 the last thing that was said, because that's, a, that's the thing we know about social norms. As they develop and as people hop on board, sooner or later, objections to them just die out. That's just the notion. That's just how social norms work. Right, um, people might still object, they just don't voice it anymore, right, um, maybe, but either way. And so yeah, right, at, at the end of the day, again, you can accept a decent amount of non-compliance so long as the norm's still developing to fixation. And then once it does, everyone hops on board or at least stops complaining. Um, and so it's, it, then it's not that big of a deal. 
The problem with that is uh, do the changes in the law lead the norms or follow them? Um, it is no secret that both on the left, because I did it, and on the right, because the people in Masterpiece Cake did it, um, these issues, despite the fact that there may be six or ten or six hundred people out there who really care about them, um, are exactly uh, the sticking points, uh, the points of friction uh, between competing sets of constitutional rights that make for wonderful opportunities to shape the law um, through the courts in a direction that one group with a particular, and I'm not saying either side, left or right, uh, with a particular spin on the way in which the Constitution should work, um, would like to see it operate. Um, these cases persist because they are test cases. They don't come out of thin air. They are as carefully constructed as was Roe versus Wade. Um, they are as carefully constructed as was Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. Um, on the left and on the right, every one of these test vehicles represent the politicization of a, a constitutional question that is carefully groomed uh, for its passage up to the Supreme Court and precisely the sort of discussion that it leads to here. Yeah, so and, and, and as oh, Ray was yeah. mentioning, it's important to remember what the facts were because when a court decides a case, they don't decide an abstract legal problem. They always have to also look at the facts because the facts give the court some type of boundaries in which they make their decisions. And in this case, the facts were unusual because the individual had said to the customers, I will sell you a cake. Gay or straight, I will sell you a cake. What I won't do is I won't design a cake that deals with promoting or saluting the idea of homosexual union. So there became this artistic overlay about can you make someone use their artistic abilities, not just taking a cake off the shelf and going to the cash register and stuff. Can you make this man or woman go to the back of the shop and design something that celebrates something that is diametrically opposed to what the religion teaches. And that's why, as somebody said, the court punted. What happened in the decision was, the court talked a little bit about the concepts of how these things might play out, but they never voted on it. What they said was that the Civil Rights Commission of the particular state involved didn't do its job of looking at it correctly, and therefore they sent it back down and said, you look at it first before we take a look at it again, maybe. But again, it was the facts that can somebody deny the ability of someone to walk in their door is one thing. Can they deny the ability of that person walking in their door to say, I want you to use your artistic abilities to give me something that I want that you don't agree with? And I mean, I was just going to clarify on the tail of those remarks, just that like the fact that there are so few people who are in that objector category to me doesn't, I'm not sure which way it cuts. So I have a colleague who always says, look, I agree, there's six people, let's just exempt them. And I'm always like, look, you know, there's six people, why are we writing law and constitutional doctrine around six people? You know, like let's, so I don't know, you know, I don't know where it leaves us. I just want to be clear about that. I think, you know, that you're right, it's a social norm and eventually it's going to assimilate, but in the meantime, that might explain why, I guess, the court is not. But wouldn't you, know, you agree with Ray that the reason why we active. had uh, Rosa Parks and the reason why we had Selman, the reason why we had a lot of these cases, uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with various civil rights issues is because the ACLU very carefully and wisely put together facts in order to get a very important issue before the high court so they could get a ruling on an important right. Sure. Yeah. So that may be what happened here is this was brought up for a particular reason by two different sides. Mm -hmm. Also, the last thing to remember is don't feel uh, as if the minority should be overlooked because it's a tiny minority. 
uh, all of what we're talking about today in the Bill of Rights, all the five freedoms in the First Amendment, and all the others as well, are effectively anti-majoritarian protections. Absolutely. They are there for the sake of the minority. They are there so that the majority does not become, in Madison's words, a tyranny. First Amendment does not protect speech we love, but speech we hate. All right. Speaking of speech, here at the Free Speech Forum, um, I'm Joe Froelich, Executive Editor at Ideastream, and tonight we're listening to a constitutional forum on religious freedom and the First Amendment, featuring Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, and the Judge Ben C. Green, Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Marcus Schultzbergen, Assistant College Lecturer in the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion at Cleveland State University. Patrick J. Parati, partner at Dworkin and Bernstein, LPA, and Raymond Vasveri, principal at Vasveri Zimmerman. We're about to begin the audience question and answer part of our program. We welcome questions from everyone. If you're following along on Twitter or our Facebook Live video, you can tweet your question to at the City Club, all run together, and we'll try to work it in. Please remember questions, not statements. We're like Jeopardy in that way. <laughs> May we have a first question, please? And we wait for the microphone to come to you. Vince? I wanted to ask you about Masterpiece Cake, but I really have a different question, and that is uh, going to uh, Professor Hill, what you said earlier about con uh, conscience versus religion and conscience as objectors. Does the First Amendment, uh, when we talk about freedom of religion, does the First Amendment cover people with no religious beliefs, the unchurched, uh, the agnostics and the atheists, and to what degree does it cover those people? Uh, well, I'll start, which the answer is absolutely yes and no. So, <laughs> That's a, <laughs> you must be a yes. lawyer. Yeah, right, exactly. Even better, she's a teacher. Yeah, 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 the, the lawyer's answer, the law professor's answer. So yes, for the most part, yes, the court has said, you know, that it includes the right not to have um, a the right to be protected in your religious belief is also the right to be protected um, if you don't have any religious beliefs and that, you know, um, freedom from religion is also protected under both clauses of the Constitution. I mean, that being said, there has been a recent sort of trend of the Supreme Court and lower courts kind of increasingly accepting that, yeah, but sort of, um, Judeo-Christian, whatever that term is supposed to really mean, but but sort of Christian practices and sort of recognizably um, traditional practices inflected with religion are somewhat more protected. So in, you know, it's accepted practices like legislative prayer, where you start a, um, a city council meeting or other official government meeting with a prayer, and even if that prayer is always or almost always a Christian prayer, for example, the, or maybe occasionally there's like another um, religion thrown in there, but we don't ever hear from atheists and we don't ever hear from, so there have been a lot of contexts in which the court has nonetheless accepted, you know, predominance of religious mindsets over atheistic mindsets, despite the fact that there is language in a lot of cases saying, you know, non-religion is as protected as religion. Do you wanna, anyone wanna? Anybody else? I, I want to just build on a question. We're kind of a follow-up on that. So, when the when the Constitution was, when the Bill of Rights was approved, we were presumably, maybe, maybe you want to correct my history, maybe Marcus, if I'm wrong here, but we were an overwhelmingly Christian country. People were to define that way. Have the courts, over time, as we've become more diverse, as more people will call themselves atheists or say they're nuns, they 
they don't practice in any organized religion. Have the courts changed their attitude or the way they approach these cases as a result of that? I mean, I think just the one thing I'll, I, I'll mention is that it's worth remembering that like Mormons were not considered Christian when they were first Mormon, you know, and so, and, but over time the religious freedoms were extended to them as well. And so um, there is certainly, and, and obviously as we've increased this, the diversity of, of non-Judeo-Christian religions, we've seen extensions of, of uh, freedoms to them. And so um, we certainly have moved away from just saying really what we, you know, it's not unreasonable to say initially what we meant by freedom of religion is freedom to practice your Christian religion, right? Whichever mm -hmm. that might be. That is like largely a Catholic Protestant conflict is what we were focused on there. We've definitely moved away from that and now it's more generally about religion. Um, now, you know, can we move towards things that aren't religious, you know, uh, uh, moral objections that aren't religiously based is sort of the next, the next place to, to be looking. Um, this is something that Canada dealt with, for instance, um, in extending certain rights. And I don't remember the exact case. I know it just had to do with moral objections to consuming animal products um, and being permitted. I, I, so I think it was in a, in, a, in a situation where maybe in the military they were, in fact, uh, always being provided meat. And they said, no, my, I'm morally opposed to it and they were protected as conscientious objectors to consumption of meat. They should be provided with uh, a vegetarian or vegan accommodation. Um, we would face a similar thing here, could easily face a similar thing here for religious or non-religious reasons for like prisoners, for instance, and what meals they could eat. Um, and so those would be, I think, interesting places to see where it develops because those are where we start to move it out of um, uh, straightforward religion into more general uh, moral concerns, but ones that are very deeply held by the people who hold them. Um, and so ones where um, the court would have to, um, I, I think it would have to take them seriously at least, whether or not, how they would deal with it, I don't know. And the, the other thing that the professor can correct me if I'm, I'm not sure, um, the rights that the courts are going to protect to do or not do something based on a religious motivation, there's some additional test that if you do it and it causes some type of a serious societal harm, the court won't protect it. For example, and we look now, what would we think of in, in current media, to go along your line, not a religious objection, but a moral objection to vaccination? So where does that go? Mm. So people say, I will not vaccinate my children because I have a moral objection to that. But then that outcome could be a serious plague of measles or, or rubella or something else. And that's the same thing as when we've talked about the idea of Seventh-day Adventists, that you don't have to work on certain days, you have, you have a right to do this, you have a right to certain clothing. In France, the idea of wearing burqas, which is also generally protected in the French Constitution for a religious issue, has been overruled by a security demand that people in certain locations must reveal their face so that they can be face-checked against different identity software. So all of this thing does have a balance with it. And the more you get into the non-religious moral issues, the more you're going to see things that are going to be thrown into that balancing and well done. And maybe we should protect these things, but we always have to have that balance of, and then how does that affect the rest of society in a serious way? All right. I actually have a question uh, given exemptions for vaccinations. Uh, so we talked about religious exemptions uh, for conscientious objecting and their religious exemptions for vaccinations. Um, but it's not clear to me that the secular exe 
uh, objections for vaccinations are deeply rooted in a moral concern. Um, and if maybe it's a state's right issue, and so that's going to be different. But if we can talk about exemptions um, for conscientious objecting to vaccinations that are not in this kind of moral sense. I think right. Did you want to take that? Well, I, 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 think, I think you hit upon what we need to do is make a critical distinction um, between what is claimed to be a moral objection and what is actually um, a badly informed opinion. Um, <laughs> and, and yet here's where, we, here's where we come across the notion of why should religion be given a preferential treatment. If my faith teaches me um, that a blood transfusion as a Jehovah's Witness might is wrong, or the taking of certain medicines, most medicines uh, as a Christian scientist would believe is wrong. Um, why do we allow that um, decision, which is objectively equally as poorly informed, um, some additional precedence or weight um, because, well, it's, it, it's an old bias um, and it's widely held. Um, which seems to me to make it both entrenched and more dangerous. Um, so yeah, I think there is a question. Not everything is moral, and what's the moral claim that's being asserted against vaccinating your child? That I should be the one to decide? Um, that the state has overstepped? I mean, always in these cases, I think what it boils down to uh, is that there is a line between personal autonomy and collective, um, uh, collective decision-making, uh, a line that forms the boundary uh, between the state and the individual, um, and that in this particular case, it's been crossed. Um, and the next question I think you have to answer is, well, why do we put that particular boundary here? Um, what's the claim to say that this isn't a collective decision, it's a personal decision? And in many cases in dealing with religion, I think what the courts recognize is that there is something transcendent, something um, Something about the way in which it would orient oneself uh, to existence or the ground of being that is inherent in the religious decision that somehow gives it the extra weight. But I don't see that in every case where you have the line drawn between the individual and the state because all legislation is effectively a drawing of the line between individual autonomy and state power. Why should this one be different? And so I think that's the question to ask, and you have asked it. Yeah, so I, I guess I just wanted to to say that, that getting back to the substantial burden element that was actually previously mentioned, I think that's another way you can think about vaccination situations in particular. And it seems like the way that certain states have actually thought about it, particularly those who have just eliminated. Uh, um, California. Yeah, yeah, they've eliminated objections, period, religious or otherwise, right? And so, I mean, for health reasons, right? Obviously, some kids can't get them for health reasons. They're going to be cool with that. But their point is, it's just too substantial of a burden, no matter what. And so, um, there, I think that the, the benefit of that being the, ex, the justification for, for the coercion, right, for forcing the, the vaccinations, is that we don't have to worry about the courts getting involved in making these determinations about what counts as a sincerely held belief versus just a poorly formed opinion. Because, you know, so long as they're making those decisions and I agree with them, I like them, right? But as soon as they're starting to make them and I don't like, you know, and they're my opinions, then it's a problem. And so it's a really dangerous game to be playing to allow, to, to ask the courts to make decisions about what constitutes a sincerely held belief versus a poorly formed opinion. And so it's better to find, it's certainly better to find other ways of achieving the ends, right? I mean, uh, well, I guess another another gloss you could put on this idea is that you see in some again in some of the scholarly literature is folks talk about 
third-party harms as a concept here when we talk about exemptions? Should a limit on those exemptions be where other people, not the individual seeking an exemption from vaccination or whatever, but somebody else could be harmed? So the child who maybe is too young to have an opinion about this or other people's children who could be harmed. If, so um, so this, this is another way you can kind of think about cabining this concept of, like um, Patrick said, this idea that if there's some societal danger or something at, at issue, if somebody who doesn't share that religion is going to be harmed by your exemption, you know, isn't that kind of where your exemption ends? There's a very uh, on the other hand, oh, there's sorry. a very yeah. old and intellectually very complicated rule that was set up, set down by a court quite a while ago. My right to swing my fist ends at your nose. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So that's idea. what it is. On it's, the other hand, you know, you, you can say, well, as a society, don't we bear some cost for protecting religious rights? So there is that other side, mm -hmm. potentially. Okay. Question? Yes, how much of this could be eliminated with uh, especially the gay rights, uh, other items like that, with a little more tolerance on both sides, mm -hmm. where it seems now this country is I'm going to win by beating you over the head with a club and with my views, and you're going to win by beating me over the head with a club for the other views, and we're both going to end up with flat heads where there'd be no uh, collegially in the middle. Who wants to take that one? We just had an event at, at Maltz um, Museum, which is how many kids? There were actually 2,000 kids participated in an event called Stop the Hate. And that was the whole point, is the only way you're going to get beyond this Trump attitude or Pelosi attitude, or this political attitude where everyone is hating each other, is I think events like this, where we have people in this audience and people on this panel who have very different opinions on things, but we're all here together and we're all talking about it. And we need to reach that, that goal. But personally, do I, do I have a panacea for it? I don't. But I pray every day that we reach it, because we have to. Otherwise, the country is just going downhill. I'll just say, in, in this particular situation, the sort of situation where uh, that the most recent cases are sort of focusing on, um, right, emphasizing the fact that what some people particularly care about on, on particular side has to do with developing social norms, right? So in this case, developing social norms of acceptance of certain peoples, particularly the LGBTQ community. Um, if, if you recognize that that's what you're after, and again, then it should help you see that you don't need, uh, nor, nor would it actually be possible, frankly, right? So it's also a question, it's also that issue. Uh, it's not possible, nor, nor do you need 100% compliance to get there. And so then it can help sort of recognize that sometimes uh, certain, certain battles don't need to be fought because they're small enough battles that it just won't make a difference in the long run, right? Um, and I mean, I think in a sense that's just that's just beneficial because it helps prevent the clubbing in certain cases, right? Because in those cases, you're just, I'll, I'll just keep my club to myself here; um, it's not needed. Anybody else? I just I had one question: Where you draw? Going back to cakes because desserts are great. Where do you where do you draw the line? Because who's to say? Let's take it out of the Christian non-Christian realm, and let's say you have somebody who believes in a God and somebody who believes in an anti-God or demo that is not a God, let's say an atheist versus a Buddhist. Why are the atheists, let's say you have an atheist cake maker, why would a Christian or a Buddhist or even go to an atheist cake maker to make them a cake and when they say it's against my views, then sue them? 
where do you draw the line? Because you're saying that, okay, well, the people who believe in a God is more important than the person who doesn't, and vice versa. With the cake, they weren't being discriminated against. No cake maker would do their cake. And as Mr. Parati pointed out, they were saying, look, I'll do your cake, but I cannot because of my religious beliefs. What I see is, no matter what your religion, you're being discriminated against, and people are calling, let's just throw it out there, Christian beliefs as, well, they're racist, they're this. No, it's a belief that they were raised with. Why is one belief greater than another in this case where they're being sanctioned for wanting to not bake a cake? There's other cake makers. Why did you specifically choose, if I had to guess, this cake maker was openly Christian, why would somebody who doesn't believe in that go to a cake maker? Let's say it's a demonic cake maker who says, I don't believe in God. I'm going to go there and make you make me a cake that says Jesus Christ is the way. The demonic guy would say, I'm not going to do that. Would we have this same scenario pop up? That's a very, very interesting question. We talked about that at lunch. Yeah. We talked about the idea, because we had a lunch before we came here. And we, <laughs> and, and this was last week. And you mentioned that maybe it's the idea of, which is a concept that arises in, in certain types of employment litigation, which I don't agree with. But it's, well, if you can get the job somewhere else or in a class action, if you can get these services somewhere else, then maybe there's no wrong being committed. So if other cake makers are available, then just go to the other cake makers. And I said, no, wait a minute. I said, so in other words, if blacks can go to another store, then this store can say, well, I don't have to serve blacks. I said, wait a minute, there's a constitutional amendment that it gives minorities the right of contract. You, no one can deny it. And so the question became, is it a matter of numbers or is it just a matter of, of activity? I, this is just an issue that uh, it applies in other places too. So one place you're now seeing it rise within states is of access to abortion clinics as well, is the distinction between a formal and an effective right. right? I mean, we can have formally protected rights and then uh, which is say you have this right. Whether or not you can ever exercise it is a, a separate question. Effective rights are those you can exercise, right? So in this case, it's, hey, if there's 10 cake makers and one of them says they won't do it, you got nine. So you still have an effective right, right? But once you get down to even maybe just one, assuming it's far enough away, let's say, then it might reasonably not be called an effective right anymore. It's definitely when it's zero, it's not an effective right anymore. Um, but there is something, so, so on one hand, I think there's something to that distinction. There's something to recognize that so long as the right's still effective, it's, you certainly don't have as strong of a claim to make that, in, that anything's gone wrong, right? Maybe you still have some claim, but no, no, not, not near as strong. Um, but on the other side, right, the counterexamples are the ones where, where it, it makes me feel really uh, iffy about saying, yeah, that, that's how we should settle the issue, um, are, are cases where, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, as long as someone could go to some business, then I guess every other business could just deny a person uh, uh, access based on race, based on religion, based, what, you know, whatever. And that starts to seem worrisome, obviously. So uh, does the law look to stop the misconduct, or does the law look to allow the person to obtain the service? So, I mean, I think that there's t sort of two kinds of harm here, is how I look at it. I mean, one is an access issue. You know, if you can't, if you're the only baker in town and you're not going to serve these people, they can't get a cake, right? That's a problem. If you're not and there are 14 more on the block, it's less of a problem. So the, ac the access harm is one thing, but I think there's like a dignitary harm that is the other piece. And I think they're separate harms. And I think, yes. you know, you could say, right, under, um, you know, the pre-Brown v. Board of Education era, you know, 
blacks and whites both had access to public schooling. Except and in theory, Which it was, was equal, bad. right? In reality, it was not. But the, what the court said in Brown is, doesn't matter, even if it is equal in reality, it's still a problem, right? We still recognize that that sends a message of inferiority to one group of people. And I think that that is the concern that maybe gets a little underplayed in those discussions about access to, to bakers and so on, um, but, but that that's what a lot of this litigation is really about, is this message that you are less than, that you are not equal. Now, I'll throw a wrinkle on that by saying, yeah, but nothing, for example, would stop that baker from putting a sign in his window saying, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and I, you know, don't respect gay couples. Or so, right, he could still do that. He has a free speech right to do. So, you know, you can inflict the dignitary harm in other ways. So, I don't know. But, but in any case, that's, that's how I see it, is that there's these two kinds of harms, and you have to think about them separately. Not to be lost in this is that non-discrimination, at least with respect to bakers in Colorado and uh, racial non-discrimination nationwide, is the law. And when we start to allow people to make exemptions because there's really no harm, uh, I think we need to face the question of, well, if we're going to write this into law, how serious are we? Um, and if people have exemptions to the law, then ought not uh, the burden be upon them to demonstrate why it is that they should be exempt? Uh, you know, this is, uh, it's a conflict because I think by nature uh, this is and has become both through the weaponization of constitutional rights um, and through the uh, sophisticated presentation of these issues um, uh, to be sand in the gears, to be flashpoints. Um, this is a contentious society and it is in many ways a winner-takes-all society. Uh, and the determination that universally the law is going to apply to protect a certain group or to forbid a certain sort of discrimination is a winner-take-all uh, determination. Somebody is on the losing end of that. Maybe a substantial plurality is on the losing end of that. So the question you ask really is, can you at, uh, at the end of the day um, legislate this sort of tolerance and acceptance by fiat um, as at least effective, as a set of effective rights, or as a set of, of, of formal rights, and hope that they will become in time, um, because people are worn down through attrition, uh, effective. And that is the big question. But I think the answer, in some sense, that it is the law, isn't just a sort of positivist answer. It's the answer that you have to say, well, if, if we're going to allow, or we're going to say that it's the law, but allow a whole plethora of exceptions, um, then how serious are we in saying that's the law? How committed are we to the rule of law? Um, and is law the proper agency by which to achieve this end? Who else? Any last thoughts from anyone? Hearing none. <laughs> Tonight we've been at the Great Lakes Brewing Company listening to the fifth forum in our Constitution Ale series, a conversation about religious freedom in the First Amendment featuring Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, and the Ben C. Green Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, Marcus Schultz-Bergen, PhD, Assistant College Lecturer in the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion at Cleveland State University, Patrick J. Parati, partner at Dworkin and Bernstein, LPA, and Raymond Vasveri, Principal at Vasveri Zimmerman. I'm Joe Froelich, Executive Editor at IdeaStream. Thank you all for joining us tonight. This forum is now adjourned.